0: I don't know if you watched it, but this past uh, Wednesday, uh, the president gave his first address to the nation regarding the, the recent coronavirus outbreak. And I got to be honest, I watched it. It was kind of a, a, a strange address. Uh, the president gave a report which it largely downplayed the threat of the virus, which in, in many ways was, was right. I mean, he was trying to calm people's fears. I mean, he rightly stressed that it's, you know, it's nothing like, uh, uh, like that movie Outbreak. Remember the movie Outbreak? where it was like a flesh-eating virus, and if you get it, it's terminal. It's it's nothing like that. It's basically the flu, and they've even likened it to something like a a cold. Uh, So so we shouldn't think of it like that. But uh, when the leaders of the CDC and the Health and Human Services Department spoke, they they urged greater caution, and they stressed the inevitability that this is going to continue to grow. We're going to see more cases of it in the U.S., to which the president turns back around and says, "No, it's not inevitable. It's not." Gonna. There was like this back and forth. I kind of felt like he was going to be saying, "Everything's fine." As guys in hazmat suits, are going to like appear in the background. You know, you know, Dustin Hoffman and Rene Russo were going to appear suddenly. I think it was well intentioned. You know, I, I think he wanted to calm jittery nerves and, and prevent further panic. I just, I think, in many ways, especially if you watch the market the next day, it was kind of the uh, the opposite. It was somewhat counterproductive. Uh people could sense that um, more was going on than what we were being told, but um I think what would have been more effective what would have been more balanced at calming people's fears is just to present a realistic expectation of what what's going to happen right There was a good job of saying that we don't need to panic over this this is this is the flu basically it, it just it could go uh, quickly people recover from it but but look. We're going to see more cases of it. So don't be shocked when you see more cases of it. When you open up the paper or your, your tablet and you see that more people get it, don't be shocked. That's, that's expected, right? Don't panic when you see more cases of it because we can handle this. We're prepared for this, and you can be prepared for it too. Now, wouldn't that have been more helpful to j- 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 just tell people Uh, A realistic expectation followed by assurance that it's going to be okay. We're prepared for it. You can be too. And I think that's true for about anything, right? You don't want to go to the doctor, and you don't want your doctor telling you an unrealistic expectation. You want to know what you're facing. It's better to have a realistic expectation so that we can prepare effectively than to avoid reality and be called unprepared. And if you understand that, then you understand exactly what Jesus is doing in our passage here in Luke 17. Jesus is giving us a balanced view of the challenges that we will face in the Christian life. See, on the one hand, temptations and challenges to our faith are inevitable. We cannot Avoid all of them. However, on the other hand, that doesn't mean that they're going to overtake us. Because we know they're coming, we can be prepared to face them head on. That's the main idea that Jesus has in mind here in Luke 17. And and I want to look at how that unfolds in three ways. Jesus tells us very plainly about the inevitability of temptations and challenges to our faith. But he also tells us about the accountability for the one doing the tempting. But not even those two things. He goes on to talk to us about the responsibility of us who are tempted. So the the inevitability of temptations, the accountability of the tempter, and the responsibility of the tempted. Temptations are sure to come, and so we need to be prepared. So let's look first at the inevitability of those temptations as Jesus unpacks it for us in verse 1. Look down with me and look at what Jesus says. He says to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. So you you hear it. The inevitability that we as Christians throughout the Christian life are going to face challenges. We're going to face temptations. He's using very strong language here to describe the inability to prevent or hinder temptations from coming our way. And, And there's a reason for this. The reason is we live in a fallen, sinful, broken world, and temptations to sin are simply part and parcel to this world's fallenness. And the sources of temptation in this fallen world are are, are numerous. They come from all different angles. Certainly, we face temptations from Satan and his cohorts, don't we? Which is why the Bible uh, sometimes calls Satan simply the tempter. He's been doing that since the beginning, hasn't he? So sure, we're going to face Satan and temptations from Satan, but not just Satan. Human beings tempt each other all the time. In fact, I think that's what Jesus has in mind in verse 1. Look look again at verse 1. He says, woe to the one, and that is anyone, who tempts others to sin. Not just Satan, but any human being. In fact, there's a parallel to this passage in Matthew 18, where Jesus says, woe to the world for temptations to sin. He's thinking about other human beings. And here's the thing, not just from other human beings who are non-Christians, who are outside the church. You don't, don't think that way, right? It's not just people outside the church who would tempt us to sin. You realize people inside the church tempt us to sin as well. In fact, sadly, for a lot of Christians... The biggest source of temptations from other people come from other Christians. There's a lot of Christians who don't have very many relationships at all with non-Christians. They're dealing with Christians all the time, tempting them. We don't need Satan to face temptations, but more than that, we don't even need anybody else at all. We don't even have to look outside of ourselves to find temptations to sin. Listen to how James puts this. In in James chapter 1, he says, Let let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. That's what we refer to as, as internal temptations. Think about that. You don't need Satan... And you don't need anybody else encouraging you to sin. You can do it just fine on your own. So can I. Sources of temptations are everywhere in this fallen world. They're inevitable. Now let going give you one more illustration to drive this home. Just, just think about this for a second. Even Jesus, when he walked on this earth... He 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 never sinned, but he still lived his entire life facing an onslaught of temptations from every direction. This is what Hebrews says, for we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. I don't think that means he had those internal temptations like we do, you know, he wasn't a sinner, he never desired anything that was wrong, but he had all kinds of temptations coming from Satan and from other people outside, even from his own disciples. In every other respect, he faced temptations just like we do. and just I want you to think about that for a second. If temptations were unavoidable, if challenges to our faith, were unavoidable even for our sinless Savior Jesus, then certainly they're going to be unavoidable for us as well. They're inevitable. But just because they're unavoidable in this world doesn't mean they're excusable. And that's what Jesus gets at in our next point. Look look at verse 1 and look at how Jesus talks about the accountability of the tempter. And he said to his disciples, "Temptations are sure to come. but but woe to the one through whom they come. The, the woe that Jesus pronounces upon the one who tempts God's people is, is nothing less than a pronouncement of, of judgment. Don't think of it as like when you see something really bizarre or really cool, you go, whoa! That's, that's not what Jesus means. This is a pronouncement of judgment. The one who receives Jesus' woe, understand, is receiving hell. And Jesus taught that. That's how serious this is. And just look at how Jesus describes the punishment of the person who does that in verse 2. What does it look like to receive the woe of Jesus for tempting his people? It would be better for him, for the tempter, now, if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea, than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. The, The nature of the temptation here is probably um, at the highest level. This is probably somebody who is tempting another person to completely leave the faith, to completely abandon Jesus. Uh, They want to drive a wedge between Jesus and this person that they are tempting. That is... Tempting someone to completely turn away from Jesus. And, and, whatever, and whatever form that might take, you understand there's a lot of different ways people can do that. It could, it could be uh, persecution. It could be seduction. It's, it's, maybe it's not pain, but pleasure that's being used to, to pull the person away from Jesus. It could be false teaching. It could be any number of things, but whatever form it is, it, it, it's an attempt to get a, a Christian to abandon their commitment to Jesus, to drive a wedge and separate Jesus and his people. And, and Jesus just gives the strongest warning to anybody who would dare try that. It would be better for him. If a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea, then, then he should cause one of these little ones to stumble. Don't skip over that. Just let that hit you with the impact that Jesus intends. Uh, this, is, this is a, a graphic illustration. Um, if you've ever experienced what it's like to nearly drown, you know how terrifying this is. I'll never forget one summer as a kid. Uh, we were on vacation in Myrtle Beach. And we were packing stuff up for the day. And uh, mom was going back up the beach to put up the umbrella on the chairs. And I was going to run in, do one more swim, and then come. And then we were going to head up. And it turned out that was literally almost my last swim going back into the ocean. Because as soon as I went out, I got called in a riptide in Myrtle Beach. And in no time, as soon as I got out there, I was over my head, and uh, I couldn't get back in. And the harder and harder I struggled to swim back to shore, I kept getting sucked out further and further. I mean, I was, I was drowning. And there was nothing I could do about it, and there was nobody around to help. And I was, I was this close to drowning that day. And thank God, in my case, somebody went in and got there in time and pulled me out. But still to this day, I get apprehensive whenever I go to the beach and I look at the ocean. I mean, I am—I get the image Jesus is using here of drowning. I mean, just, just think of being out in a boat on the open water and having a millstone. You know what a millstone is? They're, they're, they're really big. they probably weigh hundreds of pounds, okay? And to have that somehow strapped to your neck and then to be hurled out of the boat into the open water and the instant you hit the water, you begin to sink faster and faster, deeper and deeper and no amount of effort, no amount of struggle can save you. There's no escape from that. I mean, that is terrifying what Jesus is saying. So so don't sugarcoat this. But don't miss this either. And listen carefully to what I'm about to say. That is not what happens to the tempter. Did you notice that? That's not what happens to the tempter. That fate would actually be better than the fate of the one who tempts Jesus' people to abandon him. See, what Jesus is doing is he's using the, the, the most terrifying illustration that we can think of, and then he's saying, yeah, it's worse than that. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. So you get the point. The most unimaginably terrible fate isn't nearly as terrible as experiencing Jesus' woe for trying to separate... His people from him. Now, now let me ask you something. Do do you think Jesus is overreacting? Do you think this warning is a little over the top for what he's describing? I I don't. I don't think he's overreacting at all. I don't think this is in any way over the top. And, And here's why. Did you catch the language that he uses to refer to his people here? He calls them his little ones. The parallel in Mark's gospel says, the little ones who believe in me, which means if you're a believer in Christ, if you're his people, he loves you as his own dear child, which is why he refers to you with the tender, affectionate, loving term, little one. It's in recognition of your relationship to him. But it's also in recognition of your need for him, your need for his care, your need for his protection and provision. And like a small child, he knows how fragile you are and how vulnerable you are, how easily abused and harmed and led astray you could be. Just If you're a parent here, just think about seeing someone do that to your child. You would do anything and everything to protect them and provide for them because they're your little child. Jesus is underscoring here how much he loves his people and how committed he is to his people to protect them, to love them, to pro- provide for them. And so he warns, with the strongest possible language, anyone who would seek to abuse them, to harm them, to lead them astray, and to drive a wedge between him and them. If anyone tries to separate his people from his love, Jesus says, woe, woe to that person. Temptations will come, but woe to the one through whom they come. Jesus is going to hold them accountable. But he doesn't end there. Lastly, we need to realize that Jesus isn't just addressing the accountability of the one doing the tempting. He's also addressing the responsibility of the one being tempted. Look at the beginning of verse 3. Very simply, he says, pay attention to yourselves. And I think that means two things. I think, number one, the obvious thing it means is don't become a tempter yourself. Your responsibility to others is to lead them into a closer relationship with Jesus. That's your responsibility. With your words and with your actions, we need to be asking ourselves the question, are we drawing people closer to Jesus with the way we interact with them, with the things we say, the things we do? Or are our words and actions tearing people down and making it harder for them to treasure Jesus, pulling them further away from him? And and this isn't just like an occasional thing. This isn't a one-off. This is like day-to-day interactions with other people. On a daily basis, we have all kinds of interactions with other people, with our spouse, and with our kids, with our co-workers, with our neighbors, our friends, our brothers and sisters at church? How are we doing at drawing them closer to Jesus? Because we're doing one of two things. Even in the mundane things that we do, we're we're either helping them draw closer to Jesus or we're moving them further away. (laughs) And so Jesus says, pay attention that you don't become like the tempter. But the second thing I think he means is that we need to pay attention to the, to ourselves that we don't follow the tempter away from Jesus. Or to, if we put it positively, to pay attention that you're striving to battle these temptations. Because right? we can't avoid them. You cannot avoid it. It's going to happen. It's going to happen daily. It's going to happen every day until you reach glory. Until Jesus comes back or you go be with him, you're going to face these temptations every day. And we've got to realize that even as believers, we are vulnerable to those temptations. We're like these little children, as Jesus puts it. We're sinners. It does not take much. Look, know this about yourself. It does not take much to get you to leave Jesus. It doesn't take much. Here's how John Owen put it. He said, Temptations and occasions put nothing... Into a man, but only draw out what was in him before. And when you, when you see yourself being drawn to leaving Jesus for whatever it might be, you, you understand that's in there. We, we, we have a hard enough time dealing with temptations that arise from within us. Let's not feed the beast on the outside by going out and looking for temptations. Or by just letting our guard down, setting the Christian life on cruise control. Every, every once in a while you'll see in the news a video of these self-driving cars. And you'll see, if it's, it always frustrates me because some guy's driving and taking this with his camera as he's driving. Uh, but they'll get video of a guy who's asleep at the wheel behind a self-driving automobile. And you're not allowed to do that. You, you need to be ready just in case that thing goes off course. Your eyes need to be open. Your hands need to be ready. You need to be vigilant. If if a deer runs out or this thing malfunctions, right, you don't want to be asleep at the wheel. And sometimes I think we could we could approach the Christian life like that. Well, it's just kind of like a self-driving car. I can take my hands off the wheel, I can close my eyes, I can just relax, and the next thing you know, you're off the road. We have to keep our eyes open. We have to keep our hands ready. Temptations are inevitable. We have to pay attention, Jesus says. That's a present tense, ongoing thing we have to do constantly, day by day. He's calling us to be ever vigilant in our fight against temptations. Owen put it this way. He said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. There's not a third option. Those are your choices. And Jesus is saying, Pay attention to yourselves. Keep your eyes open. Stay ready. He's he's giving us very clear instruction here. Even as believers, temptations and challenges to our faith are going to come. They're inevitable in the Christian life. Jesus is giving you a realistic expectation of what it means to be a Christian. And he's telling us, to be ready for it, to pay attention to ourselves and to fight. And here is the really good news that Jesus has for us in our preparation to fight. We have everything in him that we need to win the battle. Everything. Remember the verse that we read a little earlier about how Jesus himself faced temptations? Just just listen to the hope that offers us as we face temptations. This is from Hebrews 2. Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Man, that's good news. Do you hear that? As you go into this week, and as you face temptations of your own, remember that simple but profound implication of the life Jesus lived for you. Because of the gospel, Jesus is able to help you when you're being tempted. Just I, I want you this week to say that to yourself over and over and over again as you face temptations, as as you are tempted to sin in whatever area that you're tempted to do it, As, as that temptation comes, say to yourself again and again and again, right here, right now, at this moment, in light of this temptation, Jesus is able to help me. He knows what I'm dealing with, and he is able to do it. Jesus is able to help you in whatever you face this week. You're not battling temptations by yourself. Now, isn't that good news? God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you'll be able to endure it, whatever it might be whatever you face, whatever the challenge might be, maybe it's intellectual, maybe it's moral, maybe it's relational, maybe it's financial, whatever it might be, know this, Jesus is able to help you. And if as you face that, if you fall, if you give in to that temptation and you sin, know this, Jesus is still able to help you to help you get up and to keep fighting as his forgiven, beloved child. You're his little one. He treasures you. He laid down his life for you. He gave everything for you so that he could give you everything in himself. He's not going to let you go through this by yourself. Not any more than a good parent will let their child. Because he faced temptations and stood. Jesus is able to forgive and help you when you face temptations and fall. Beloved, temptations will come in the Christian life. This week, this day. But with it comes the grace of Jesus to face it. So look to your Savior this week and and pray, Uh, even as we're about to sing in our closing hymn in just a minute. Pray, O grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. like. Let thy goodness, like a a fetter, bind my wondering heart to thee. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Let's pray to that end, shall we? When when we sing that, Father, help us to understand and and mean it that we are sinners, even Christian sinners, who are prone to wonder. It doesn't take much to get us to And so we are in need of your grace to grace how great a debtor we are, daily we're constrained to be. And Lord, let Your goodness, like a fetter, bind our wandering heart to Thee. And we pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. One of the ways in which we we, we find strength and support and grace to help us in our fight with temptations is through uh, the Lord's Supper which is what we turn to now in our time of worship. So as the brothers come forward, i just mentioned a few things about what we're going to do. This is a celebration of the gospel. This is a celebration of that Jesus we just uh, talked about from Hebrews who came to this world, uh, who lived a human life just like you and me. But he lived the life we should have lived, and he died the death that we deserve to die for our sin, And he rose triumphant from the dead to forgive us and not just save us from sin, but to save us to holiness and to fight temptations in the Christian life, which is why this is a meal for Christians. This is a meal for people who are in the battle. This is a meal for people who know their sin's forgiven, who have received Jesus through faith, who profess that faith in the context of Christ's church. It does not have to be this church, but any Bible-believing, gospel-believing church Where Christ is treasured, if you've professed your faith there and you're walking with Jesus, this is a meal to strengthen you and encourage you and to equip you to go out this week in the battle of temptations that are sure to come. And, And I realize that that may not be everybody. I mean, that may not be you. You may not have crossed the line of faith. You may not know what it means to have your sins forgiven. You may not know what it's like to even be in the battle. Which is why this, is, this, this meal's not for you. This meal is uh, for people who have already received Jesus. But let me tell you what is for you. Right now, right here, on offer to you, is something more than a piece of bread and a little sip of wine. Jesus is on offer to you. And you don't get him by taking communion or getting baptized or by trying really, really hard to resist temptation. You get Jesus by trusting in how faithful he wants to resist temptation. You get Jesus by trusting in how he died for all the times you've given in. So take Jesus this morning if you've never received Put your faith in him. Ask him for forgiveness. And pursue a relationship with him that is on offer to you right now. But if you've done that, and if you are eager to celebrate what he's done for you on the cross, this meal's for you. A couple things about what we'll do. The outer ring is wine. The inner rings are juice. And what we're going to do is we're going to distribute the wine and the bread separately. So when you get it, just hold on to it until everybody gets served. And then we'll all eat at the same time. And then we will drink at the same time as a way of displaying the fact that we're one. We're one. No matter what church we attend, no matter where we're from, no matter what our color, our age, our gender, we're one in Christ because we're with him. So let's begin our time together by going to our Lord, thanking him for what he's done, and remembering the gospel that's going to be on display right now. Let's pray. Jesus, we're so little and small and needy and vulnerable that we need more than even the written word. We need very tangible reminders on a regular basis of the truth and the reality of the gospel. And so use this meal to that end. As we hold that bread in our hand and feel its texture and, and, and we, we see its reality, as we, as we look at the wine and we see its color and we taste its sweetness, these are all ways in which you're reminding us of the gospel, of what you've done for us, and your presence with us each day as we face the onslaught of temptations. Don't let any of your little ones depart from you. Use this meal to draw us closer to you. And for anybody who has not received you through faith, use this meal to draw them to yourself. May they see it and see something of that reality and receive what all of this points to in a relationship with you. And we pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.